This is the Pennyworth Podcast on TV Podcast Industries, and we're looking at episode eight, Sandy Shaw. Why are you here? How do you know about Curzon? I've got important friends, me. And you're the talk of the town, you two. Why? Curzon's a nobody. Nobody's nobody. Why did you miss me? To get at me. Revenge. He thinks I disrespected him. Oh, I see. It be your fault, then. Thought as much. Why else would anyone hurt such a lovely, innocent bass like her? What did you do to disrespect him? Welcome back, fellow governors. Yes, we are back with Pennyworth, this time with episode eight of season one called Sandy Shaw. Yes, our Pennyworth podcast on TV podcast industries. I am one of your hosts, John. I'm your other host, Derek. It sounds kind of like we're going to the beach with Sandy Shaw, doesn't it? It does. Say that <laughs> very quickly, repeatedly. Sandy Shaw, Sandy Shaw, Sandy Shaw, Sandy Shaw, Sandy Shaw, Sandy Shaw. Yeah, we're off to the beach. Fells on the seashore, fells on the seashore. Yes. Tongue Twister Sandy Shaw is here for episode 8 of season 1 of Pennyworth. And yes, after our short, brief interlude, we are back in full swing to find out who is Esme's murderer, will Alfred become a killer, and is Bet Sykes as crazy as she seems? Probably, but we still like to ask that question. Yeah, yeah. We don't have it in the questions for this episode yet. But as normal, we're going to go and talk about our Royal Mail, our feedback for Pennyworth so far uh, on the series, as we've been doing on each of our episodes, because we're recording a little bit in advance of the release, so we don't get our feedback in until after the episodes are out. That is true. Yes, the Royal Mail post that isn't late at all. Never. Never. Be a love. Put stamps on them. Put them in a letterbox for me. You know I can't do that. You can. Yes, first up is an email from Claire Payne on the series so far. Claire goes, Hello, Governors. First of all, it's great to hear you both discussing this genuinely good television show of Pennyworth. Jack Bannon as Alfred Pennyworth has been fantastic to watch over the last six episodes and has possibly made this famous DC character even more likeable. I was hoping young Alfred would be more like a young version of Sean Pertwee's Alfred, but I am more than happy that he based it on Michael Caine's version. There was a moment in episode two where Alfred was being confronted by Jason Ripper. The way Jack Bannon acted the control and calmness to get the better of Jason reminded me very much of Sean Pertwee. Mm. Alfred is a wonderful complex character. He knows what he wants to do after leaving the military, but he has conflicting matters with his parents, PTSD, and trying to gain contacts to run a successful business. I have to agree with what you said about Esme as a character. I consider her to be an okay character, even though Alfred's proposal of marriage was romantic and it was probably predictable she would come to a tragic end. Dave Boy and Baza are great, interesting supporting characters and their own stories and demons they're dealing with is a welcome addition. Mm -hmm. I also really like how we're getting to know Alfred's parents. Having the butler connection and the fantastic moment at the end of episode one where Mr. and Mrs. Pennyworth showed they were both capable in defending themselves. Yes, (laughs) they were... Uh, ninja parents well, uh, in that. Kicky parents, definitely. <laughs> well, kicky kind of fighty parents, yeah, I exactly. suppose, yeah. <laughs> Claire continues, John Ripper has to be one of my favourite characters. Mm. He is mysterious, creepy, and the name that most people fear. Very good. I also agree in your discussion about Thomas Wayne. I miss this character when he wasn't around for episode three. I also agree that Thomas needs to be more of a significant character to show why Alfred becomes his loyal employee and trusted to be Bruce's future guardian. Mm. Thomas working for the CIA has been a surprisingly interesting background story that I'm more than happy to go along with. Martha is another character I have warmed to immensely, and it's good to see Batman's parents not as a couple, as I generally like them individually. And knowing their fate in the future makes the Wayne murder in the alleyway even more tragic. 
I've always felt maybe Alfred did have a bit of a romantic connection with Martha, so I wasn't surprised when the kiss happened. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Last but not least, Paloma Faith has been an absolute joy to watch. Mm-hmm. Paloma is fearless in the way she is portraying Bet Sykes. Her opening scene in the pilot episode is one of the most memorable scenes I have watched in a long time. Bet's relationship with Peggy is also fascinating to watch. Bet Sykes is definitely a character you probably would not want to meet, but you can't help wanting to know what she's been up to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd read her diaries that it is. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, let's just say she has a pretty um interesting scene, uh, shot from a distance, slightly out of focus in this episode mm-hmm. as well. Yes, uh, she does. Yes, I, I think it involves a crowbar uh-huh. as well. Um, yes, they certainly don't let the camera move on, so to speak. Uh, so, yeah, quite interesting, mm-hmm. I thought. Finally, Claire says, the mix of historical things from the past and the future makes Pennyworth extremely unique, and I particularly love how they use the Tower of London as a working prison and place of torture. Mm -hmm. With four episodes left, I am looking forward to see where the characters go and how much more tea is served in emotional situations. (laughs) As always, love your podcasts, Claire Payne, CIA agent. Ooh, espionage Claire. I think. Thank you so much, Claire, for that feedback. Yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. it has actually been a really interesting series so far, and I have to say, it does just keep getting better and better, Mm -hmm. and I think um, it's been really, really good, and I think you're right, the supporting characters are really strong. Definitely. The main characters are really strong, I think probably apart from Esme, I think we've We've, you know, we've talked about that. Yeah. Thanks so much for your feedback, Claire. It's great to hear your thoughts. I know you're doing the, the reviews for this show over on DC World as well. So thanks so much for taking the time out to write uh, your thoughts about these first six episodes. Uh, one thing I just wanted to mention, because you, you said it in here that the character of, that Jack Bannon is playing is based on uh, Michael Caine's version of the character from the Dark Knight trilogy. And um, it's actually exactly the same piece of, uh, of information that was given to Sean Pertwee to play his Alfred in Gotham. Uh, it was the same piece of dialogue that came out from uh, Michael Caine's on-screen adaptation that led Bruno Heller and Danny Cannon to come up with their idea of their Alfred for Gotham. So they just took the same starting point and just said it a bit earlier. But uh, I, under, my understanding is that Jack Bannon wasn't given any episodes of Gotham to watch. He wasn't shown any times when uh, Sean Pertwee was playing this character of Alfred to build his character on, but it does come from the same starting point, I suppose. So, uh, so unfortunately, these uh, five, five or six years that uh, that Sean Pertwee played the character of Alfred hasn't gone into the creation of Jack Bannon, other than, of course, it comes from the same writers. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? Same brief mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, uh, subtly different takes uh, from the actor. It yeah. does show you, uh, you know, that degree of interpretation and the sell of an actor's performance as to, um, you know, how they are perceived in that character. So it's really interesting stuff. And I actually think that they've both done a really good job. I love Sean Pertwee's version from Gotham. Mm-hmm. Always will. And I think Jack Bannon just brings a, a different take. I think um even if they were doing it exactly the same, because he's younger, he you know, he's less experienced, he's much coarser. He's you know, the diamond hasn't been polished yet, so to speak. Exactly. It makes sense that he's a little rougher around the edges, maybe not as suave, hasn't had those life lessons of yet. Of which I think he does get a big one in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, Claire, you can definitely see instances where he is quite like Sean Pertwee's Alfred as well. He's not just a younger version of him, but there are moments where you go, okay, that's definitely something that young Sean Pertwee would do, I suppose. So, uh, really good points there. Thanks so much for your feedback. Keep sending it in by email to feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or come over to our Facebook group like the rest of the feedback. Uh, on Facebook on episode seven, Terry Miller says, another brilliant podcast, guys. Something is said though made me rethink Esme's murder. John Ripper knows everything, so he must know that Jason is back. But he's okay with it. Maybe Jason was summoned back to kill Esme. Maybe the woman with him was Thomas's sister. Maybe the captain is just a ploy to get Alfred in trouble with the law and thus even more dependent on John Ripper. Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> That's my impression, as he said, of the first doctor doing his hmms. Yes. <laughs> It's really good stuff, Terry. Thanks uh, for the the feedback because, yeah, I mean, a lot of theories here. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this episode eight really does kind of 
maybe put a lot of the theories that both yourself and I have been sort of talking about maybe to rest, I think. But I still think there's a lot of unanswered questions around um, the driving force potentially behind Captain Curzon. Definitely, and we're definitely going to get into much more detail about that. I am really interested in why Jason is back, how he's in London, and I'm really interested in his change of personality back in Episode 7. He seems like a completely different character, even though we do have a moment where he's proposing incest to Thomas Wayne while they're watching that video, uh, which draws out the devil inside of Thomas Wayne, I suppose. Um, and remember back in episode two, when we first met Ripper, that was exactly the same type of thing that he did with Alfred. He was proposing incest to Alfred to save his mother's life, effectively, so he didn't yeah. interfere with the landlord's daughter. So there is definitely that demon and still inside Jason as well. But he seems to be a very relaxed minion of uh, Alistair Crowley in, in the previous episode, in episode seven, as we as we discussed. So very interesting. And yes, this is obviously the big thing for the series is who's killed them. And is there a bigger meaning behind the death of Esme as Definitely, well? Definitely, so. yeah. Also on that same point, Charlotte Bain has some feedback as well. Yeah, Charlotte says, Hi guys, John Ripper knows his nephew is back. That captain that allegedly killed Esme is a fall guy. Mm. Ripper knows everyone. The witch, the Satanist, and Ripper has used Alfred to kill the no-name League's leader. He's a puppet master, manipulating everyone to do his bidding for power. It's like everyone under Ripper is indebted to him, so he'll be the ultimate leader. Alfred's father is a Raven's League follower. Those people are a part of Nazism. Mm -hmm. It was a great episode, episode 7. Oh, I forgot. Thomas scolding Martha. He needs to shut up. I love you guys and this podcast. It's the best. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Really good to get your views and your feedback for sure on mm -hmm. this. Yeah, I, I still believe John Ripper is the puppet master, as you say. I, I'm kind of with you on that for sure. And I think that still is the case in my mind for episode eight. Um, but I, I, I think as we've discussed before, really looking forward to see uh, what the stick is with Jason Ripper, why mm -hmm. he's back, why he seems to be so different. Maybe it's just an act in, in front of um, Thomas Wayne and Martha Kane, uh, but certainly, um, yeah, really interesting. And I think we certainly, in episode eight, um, absolutely, if we didn't know it already, get the confirmation that the Ravens Society is effectively another uh, far-right fascist um Nazi-like party. Absolutely, absolutely. Interesting that it's the Raven Society and both yourself and Charlotte are massive Baltimore Ravens fans as well. This must be really galling to you guys that they're oh. called the Raven Society, not the Panther Society or something. Well, it's <laughs> interesting because the Raven was a symbol of Northern England with respect to when the Vikings um, controlled northern england that was their kind of um or one of their emblems in a kind of a figurative design mm. um that represented um sort of the, the vikings as a figurative emblem right um, and was adopted uh in in england interesting and the baltimore ravens are based on uh, Edgar and poe right so that's yeah. where they get their raven from so all different ravens different types of ravens yeah, but, absolutely. but interesting that every week we're talking about the ravens and their society and uh, and you're both talking to each other <laughs> through the medium of feedback about uh, about the ravens exactly I love that. of course Go Lamar Jackson. Well <laughs> right. done on week one win. There you go. There you go. We don't know what's happened in week two just yet, but, uh, but we'll know very, very soon. Um, Millie Cordelia over on Twitter had some really interesting feedback about episode seven. So I wanted to make sure I brought it into the podcast. Um, says that opening sequence of episode seven with Martha walking through the crowd of faceless men wrapped in a white sheet while play with fire by the stones is playing is grim and wonderful moments. Uh, the lyrics are absolutely chilling. It was just recorded four years prior to Brian Jones dying uh, one of the members of, of uh, the Rolling Stones really loved that scene lovely feedback there Millie that, that scene really stood out as a great opening moment in Absolutely. the episode you know remember episode one also started out with the Rolling Stones uh, so they have a big uh, moment of the Stones here haven't heard any Beatles in the show yet so obviously Stones fans uh, these guys which is good <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad the Beatles aren't playing. Millie also has some feedback about the episode title. We've all been wondering where the episode titles are coming from. Millie possibly has an answer here. Um, says, 
When I think of Julie Christie, the episode title for episode seven, I think of the film Darling, the beautiful, bored party girl who seeks meaning in life and yet finds only alienation and emptiness. Kind of like Patricia Wayne. Excellent stuff. What a brilliant yeah. point, Millie. Really good um, spot there. Yeah, because, I mean, I have to say, I don't really know uh, many of the films of Julie Christie. I know of her, and mm-hmm. the films that she's done, I haven't necessarily watched uh, a lot of them, I have to yeah. say. So that's a great, um, great bit of uh, spot there around the parallels between uh, her film Darling and, yes, the um, sort of alienation and emptiness of Patricia Wayne, for yeah. sure. Yeah, good stuff. Really good catch. Uh, finally, Millie says the cinematography of this episode was absolutely remarkable. Sets and art production are memorable as well. And as you say, who doesn't love pigs in a pram? <laughs> I'm already hoping for a second season of Pennyworth. Greatly enjoying the podcast. Don't overdo the bacon, boys. <laughs> you never overdo the bacon. I always cook it the right amount. That's it. Absolutely. <laughs> Lovely back bacon mm-hmm. in a pram. <laughs> Moving? Maybe not. Uh, thanks so much for the feedback, Millie. Great of you to join us for this podcast as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the feedback, Millie, and as well to everyone else for your thoughts mm-hmm. and comments. It's great to get that uh, in. Absolutely. Keep sending them in uh, for next week. We'll be talking about your feedback for episode eight at the start of episode nine when we get into that. Yeah, let us get on with our spoiler-filled review mm-hmm. of episode eight. Sandy Shaw. Derek. What are some of the episode details? Well, we know who Sandy Shaw is. Sandy Shaw, again, is another hugely famous British female singer from the 60s. Uh, she had hits with Always Something There to Remind Me. I'm oh, sure you cool. know that song. Yeah, yeah. It's playing in my head immediately. Uh, also had a number one with Long Live Love. And she was the first British entrant to win the Eurovision Song Contest with Puppet on a String in 1967. Another song, it's indelible, because every time the Eurovision Song Contest comes up every year, they play all the winning songs from the UK and Ireland, particularly for us when we when we tune into it. So, uh, so you'll always hear Puppet on a string over and over again i wonder if that's the reason why she was chosen as the name for this episode and um, because alfred's kind of feeling a little bit like a puppet on a string being dragged around all over the place uh, throughout this episode exactly right? who is the puppet master we have mm-hmm. some theories we have some names but yeah. who will be revealed as the puppet master and it's not just alfred that's that feels like a puppet in this episode everybody really is feeling like that the prime minister is being pulled all over the place we've got the queen herself is being moved all over the place into position uh like a chessboard effectively raven society is getting getting manipulated there's loads going on in this episode with to do with that kind of idea so i'm wondering if that's where they got it from yes uh, and a british entrant wins the eurovision mm-hmm. it certainly dates it these days <laughs> yes but 1967 so a long long time ago yeah what was the last one <laughs> sonia uh i don't sonia? even know whether she won it i know no. she entered it back I think in the she 90s came close though uh otherwise it's books fizz yeah. in the 80s yeah they've done they've done a few times not as many as ireland we're still the uh overall title holder for Absolutely. most eurovisions in the world sonia. so <laughs> sonia's not from ireland John. no she's from johnny Liverpool. logan <laughs> remember johnny yeah, logan had johnny three. logan anyway dust in the turkey yes dust in the turkey yes he, brilliant he was a puppet as well which is a nice connection there but he also was a protest entry from ireland because they got no points the previous year so they went screw it we're giving it to the children's entertainer <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely enough of the eurovision song contest yes. podcast we'll save that for next summer when the next eurovision song contest comes up uh the episode was written by danny cannon this is the first episode of mm. pennyworth that danny cannon has written yeah yeah uh, Danny Cannon, well known to us as Gotham fans, doing over our 137 episodes of Gotham, I think. We luckily got to interview him a couple of times over our time doing Gotham as well, talking about the show. So great to see him getting a credit as a writer on this show. So it's not just Bruno Heller. He got the first five episodes and now some other writers are coming in. Definitely some touches here that you can tell it's Danny Cannon behind the writer's uh, table uh, in this this episode. Uh, The episode is directed by John East. First episode of Pennyworth. He didn't do any of Gotham either. Uh, He is a British director though he's been working on tv for over 30 years recently directed three episodes of killing eve which interestingly i did see someone compare pennyworth to killing eve on twitter the other day we were having a chat about uh, about how much they were enjoying the show and they say the only other british show that they've been enjoying recently is killing eve so interesting that this next episode directed by a director of that show 
John East has also directed two episodes of the new series of Lost in Space. We haven't seen season two. It's not out yet. We've seen season one, and it was a really enjoyable show. Yeah, actually. it was good, wasn't it? Yeah, a really yeah. good remake. Uh, really interesting. Once you stuck with the family and got to know them all at the beginning, and then it just started to get more and more entertaining the more peril everybody was in as Definitely, the episodes went yeah. on. Yeah, no, it, it was a really nice surprise, actually, mm-hmm. that... Um, you know, it, it it was, I suppose, good, really. I mean, I, I know that sounds really bad, but I mean, I do remember watching Lost in Space, um, sort of the, the, what is it, the fifties or the sixties version. Sixties, yeah. Um, and, and this was like, oh, how are they going to play it? But actually, uh, I thought the changes they made really worked and <laughs> it was just nice TV to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Really good fun. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for this episode? Sure. After letting Captain Curzon, the killer of his former fiance Esme, escape, Alfred Pennyworth is determined to find him. Primed with new information about a couple entering the apartment from Bet Sykes, who is also looking to avenge Esme's murder, Alfred investigates the police as he questions Detective Inspector Aziz. While promising to help, Aziz sets a trap for Alfred as Curzon's father uses his position in high society and the influence of the Prime Minister to bury the facts, protect his son and keep Alfred permanently quiet. Armed and ready, Alfred walks knowingly into the trap. With his gun pointed at Curzon's head, he is saved from the armed police, ready to fire by Bet Sykes, who holds a knife to Aziz's throat. With Bet antagonizing Curzon, Alfred releases his rage and shoots both Curzon and his wet nurse in the head. Meanwhile, with tensions running high across England and Her Majesty's government on high alert, the Raven Society organize a rally. As Frances Gaunt finishes her speech, she resigns to reveal Lord Harwood, who assumes leadership of the society once again. As the Prime Minister watches events unfold at the rally on TV, he blows a gasket in his office in 10 Downing Street, as he realises Harwood remains a threat. The next day, the papers are in awe of Lord Harwood, and Alfred finds himself again at the end of a gun barrel as the police close in to arrest him. Great stuff. There's lots going on in this episode. Uh, Definitely lots of manipulation, particularly. Yes, there are events and things unfolding which I'm not entirely sure everyone is fully in control of their actions, and maybe that even... Uh, extends to Lord Harwood here. Mm-hmm. I think certainly there seems to be a guiding hand and, okay, big suspect, is it John Ripper? Um, is he this master manipulator? Uh, because yes, it, it's kind of interesting. Even with Lord Harwood, is it him? Because th- there's almost a suggestion of a superpower here. Uh, within this episode mm, interesting you've got loads of questions obviously we have our top five questions laid out for the episode to go through all of our points all the things that stood out to us about the episode let's get on to question number one how did the killers access esme and alfred's flat uh that's the, kind of the start of the episode the first initial meeting between bet and alfred obviously over tea uh, as they always do in this show if there's any <laughs> tension grab a pot of tea bit and of have tea. a bit of a natter and a Bicky. <laughs> I really do enjoy this scene between these two characters once again, uh, seeing the two of them together. You know, I liked that moment in the last episode where Alfred's like, you were supposed to be dead. And she's like, well, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> she has some great, great phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the fact that, you know, it's in this northern deadpan accent. Obviously, oh, yeah. it sort of warms the cockles of my heart, uh, so yeah. to speak. But I do like... Um, she goes, don't take your grump out on me, duck. <laughs> duck is such a Yorkshire phrase, uh-huh. uh, for, it's a term of endearment, actually. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, my, uh, mum and my aunties who spent their formative years in Yorkshire mm-hmm. would say duck or ducky yeah. quite a lot. Flower and pet is another one. That's well. true. That's true. I think the London equivalent would probably be love, wouldn't it? Right, love. Right, pet kind of the difference between the two yeah probably yeah um, and yeah she has other i know i like the fact that she comes in with i like your mom uh to alfred mm-hmm. you know presumably she likes her fighting qualities uh, and there's some really good stuff here oh yeah i think one of the things i really liked in, in this part was there's a really nice cut scene where you see bet and um Alfred go into the estate agents because, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that there was a couple with keys and um, they, Alfred kind of puts uh, a few things together to, to say that, 
ah, there was an apartment that was up for sale, so maybe it was a viewing, and the keys were given out by the estate agents. Uh, and you see them going to the estate agents, and then all of a sudden the, the, the camera pans back to this van um, stopping by a wall and these people coming out and putting up a Raven Society poster, which kind of links into a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. But then as that drives away, you just see this great scene of the estate agent being chucked out of the door of his um, business as straight into a post box as uh, Bet Sykes and Alfred look to uh, extract information about this couple and the keys and uh, Alfred and Esme's apartment. So yeah. I, I just thought that was a really nice cut scene. It was a nice sequence. It was really good. One. It was great tracking shot just to kind of keep the whole thing going uh, while this is going on inside. I love that Alfred obviously is going to bet. Will you just stop it? Step back, keep away from him. Why did you, why did you smack him in the face? And it's like, well, that's just my answer to everything, basically. You know, we've had that really interesting conversation between the two of them at over tea earlier on where she realizes that the information that Alfred has is that somebody's trying to get back at him, basically. She goes, Oh, of course it is. Of course it's your fault. Everybody loves Esme. Even I love Esme. <laughs> it wouldn't, it wouldn't be her fault because nobody would have any problem with her. Of course it's your fault. You know, I love that little moment between the two of them there uh, as well. And yeah. I love that she's saying to him, we should team up, team up and do this. And he's going, but I can't team up with you. You're horrible, basically. It's like, I haven't done anything to you lately. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I must say, I really enjoyed, um, Paloma Faith here in, oh. in the tea shop sort of expressing her feelings um about Esme to Alfie. I mean, yeah. he, you know, he kind of really uh, couldn't understand them, but I I thought it was uh I thought it was really nice. Um I, I I liked a little dig that because he was a man, he wouldn't really fully understand her needs uh, because men don't. And of course, it you know, in this kind of moving um sort of timeline for Pennyworth, it, it's kind of just that little nod to probably a time where, you know, women were seen as, um, you know, the housewife, like Alfred's mum. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that as such, but, you know, this, this moment before possibly full women's liberation, yeah, I yeah. suppose. And so I kind of liked that. It felt really powerful from that. Yeah. I think that's one of the great things about this show. There's so many really strong, powerful women in this show, including Alfred's mother, you know, being such a strong, powerful woman that she's able to yeah, fend exactly. off attackers and kick them on the ground as well. You know, that was good fun too. Um, but yes, it does kind of propel us into this whole investigation that's going on and kind of continuing the story of how Alfred finds his way to get to Curzon. Um, so, it seems like they've discovered that the police are involved. This, if this discussion with the estate agent on the ground outside of the estate agent's office leads to the fact that he gave the description of the man to the police, to D.I.S.E.s effectively. And Alfred does a bit of a Batman, um, turning up in Aziz's office to get the information out of him and then just disappearing yeah, after he's yeah, left him with his instructions. Thought that was really cool at the moment. Yeah, I, definitely. I, I thought that was a nice touch. Um, and I think this was a really good episode for, just, you know, panning back from Detective Inspector as is and, and really um, getting to know a bit more about his motivations. I, I like the fact that, you know, he at least expresses that he is um, a detective trapped by his superiors, yeah. that he is just doing his job. It is that sort of um, excuse of I'm just doing my job. I can't change anything because my superiors now it just so happens his superiors are pretty powerful given that well, they yeah. are the prime minister and um some high society lord mm -hmm. uh it's an interesting thing that he ultimately in, in many respects feels powerless uh that he's really just taking orders but that certainly later in the episode when he looks to trap alfred in order to sort of you know quieten this whole incident down to protect Lord Curzon and his son that um as is does try and give Alfred this way out or yeah. you know leave the country uh, and I thought that was uh really interesting as well so the, the, even though I didn't necessarily warn to him I, I thought this was a really nice episode for the detective inspector and yeah. certainly it wasn't him that killed Esme, like one of my theories was previously. That's right. That's so right. Uh, that has been cleared up. And, and I think really here that uh, 
Captain Curzon, uh, Alfred's former captain in the army, certainly seems to have been um, the person to have done the deed. Whether it was his idea is another matter to be seen. I suspect not, though. So I'm going to get this out of the way in the first point here, um, rather than later on in the episode. I really didn't like the fact that they avoided so often confirming that Curzon is the actual killer in this episode. This is something that we've been talking about, about since episode three, and loads of our listeners, loads of the viewers of Pennyworth are trying to work out who it is that murdered Esme. And right now we're on episode eight of a 10 episode show that hasn't been renewed for season two. Nobody's been, nobody's confirmed that it's been, re- been renewed yet. And it feels like for those reasons, the show is keeping this piece of information back from us. What we know is that Alfred suspects that Curzon is the one that killed Esme, so therefore he's put up on a platter in front of, of Alfred with an older aged woman, um, which happens to be the cleaner, and we'll talk about them in a second. And then Alfred shoots them both in the head without actually asking the question, did you kill Esme? We also saw that moment with the estate agent where he describes what he, what information he gave to the police, but doesn't give the information to Alfred. He says to him, I told them what the man looked like who got the keys. And then Alfred jumps to the conclusion that the police were involved and goes to the police without getting the description from the estate agent. Yeah? Yeah. So it feels like they're holding back a piece of information in case they get a season two and want to expand potentially the story of who it is that killed Esme, that maybe Curzon wasn't involved at all. So it feels like they're keeping this piece of information back from us, even though they absolutely could just go, if this if this is the only series of Pennyworth, they could end the series and go, but we gave you the killer. Yeah. Yeah. I just want them to underline that tiny bit of information because everybody's wanted to know who the murderer is, I suppose. So I want to know that Alfred got his man. Yeah, definitely. But I, I think equally here, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, Alfred cold-bloodedly murders both his previous captain and the, the captain's wet nurse. Um, and <laughs> you say uh, wet nurse. <laughs> well, I do because I do really like Bet Sykes. She goes, posh people, perverts, the lot of them. I can't believe they're allowed to reproduce mm-hmm. because for her, this nanny, it's a nanny. Yeah. So yeah, I'm calling her a wet nurse, but that's how she reads it. Yeah. That he's still effectively needing to, uh, suckle. And that's why she goes okay. on that they're all perverts, these posh people. They're a bit sort of weedy and weak. And for some reason, people in high society feel yeah. that they still need to sort of breastfeed. So um, that's how I took it okay. anyway. <laughs> Maybe that I've seen too uh, much of Game of Thrones Maybe. with um, the Eyrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, who knows? But now, I just heard Nanny. I, I was more assuming that he had his nappy changed occasionally, his diaper changed occasionally by this woman. You know, I thought it was much more that <laughs> that he was being treated like a child by this woman. And I just assumed Bet was going, oh, not another perverted old old person in this in this place. Just like the women she's been dealing with around her sister's house. Let's know? just say, whatever he was doing with the wet nurse, she wasn't a cleaner who called over once a yeah. week to clean the house. Basically. And whatever was happening, he was far too old to have mm-hmm. a nanny. Uh, for exactly, sure, exactly. Or a wet nurse or any other kind of thing uh, like that. But, I mean, back to the, the bullet shots to the head. Um, you know, in a sense, in this moment, I was like, wow, that's a big thing that Alfred has shot these two people cold-bloodedly in the head like that yeah. through this emotional sort of pent-up rage and, and seething anger that I think he has. I mean, he looks calm, but... He, he just does it execution style. But of course, he's just from the SAS, um, after fighting in the jungle. So this wouldn't be, um, sort of something unexpected. It's unexpected when you understand that Alfred in Gotham, in Wayne Manor, really kind of disapproves about killing people and make, and, uh, you know, the ethos of Batman that he won't kill um, his, um, his prey effectively, yeah. the people that he's after, that he wants justice, you know, very much is, comes from Alfred here. And certainly at least from Gotham, yes, he does shoot and, and kill people, but in the main, he does try to do it from a protection point of view Absolutely. rather than through a rage. And I'm just wondering, you know, is this some kind of lesson learnt here? 
Yeah, and he hasn't really killed anybody since the beginning of the series, particularly, has he? Um, we know Baza and Dave Boy have kind of taken on that role of being the killers on his behalf. They'll take up guns and they'll shoot other people from the first episode. Uh, Alfred hasn't really shot in the direction of people, I think, a few times with guns, but he hasn't really killed anybody uh, since the beginning of the series, right? Not really, no. I mean, uh, he has carried a gun. Yeah. And as you say, shot people, but I, I, I think This it, is very brutal. Though. Yeah, it, it's very brutal. Um, and I wonder if ultimately... Um, this is some lesson for the future for, for Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting before he shoots them, he effect- effectively says, I don't need any more questions answered from these two. They've done every, they've said everything. There's nothing that they can say that would be of interest to me and just kills the two of them. A little bit of a cheat, as I said, because he could have asked the question of Curzon and Curzon could have transferred the blame to somebody else or explained who it was that did it. He just said, I have a perversion effectively. So perhaps he is the one that killed them, but we won't know from his lips who it was that sent him to do that deed effectively. So, or if anybody did send him to do that deed. Um, we also see Beth getting her own back, I suppose, on Curzon in, in the background. <laughs> yeah. This is the scene you were speaking about earlier on, uh, as she mounts effectively Curzon against a, against a fence and bashes his head in with a crowbar and then dumps the body um all while aziz is watching on grimacing at this woman you know yeah i mean yeah bet sykes cleans up in a big way here um but yeah this was fairly sort of um almost mob-esque uh you know disposing of the bodies uh cleaning up after the facts and yeah it was pretty brutal i mean dare i say it that i just felt uh, that it lingered maybe a little too much uh-huh. and certainly with the effect and the fact it was done through a blurred lens um at least hid that but you still kind of saw the the cavey skull oh, yeah. going and happening uh but it is bet and she will do what she will do. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have had any major effect either, uh, what she did. If she was trying to cover up the murders and trying to hide the bodies, uh, with Aziz looking on, obviously he knew that something was going to happen so, and saw everything that happened. So he could just go away. And, and I think as Alfred mentioned in the episode, the minute Alfred turns his back, he could call the Sweeney in, up, in on him, which is the cops, yeah. effectively. Um, that's what happens. Uh, Alfred goes to visit Esme's grave in a really touching scene, actually. I love that moment. It feels like he hasn't visited Esme's grave. He's going back to her now because he's saying to her, I've now gotten the ones that killed you. Yeah. And now I can move on, I suppose. He's now remem- remembering things that happened in their life together in a positive light when in the past it was ripping him apart, effectively, because he's now finished off the people that did what they did. Yeah. And just as he's finishing that kind of conversation with Esme, Aziz arrives with what looked like the British SS, effectively. Not SAS. Yeah, they're kind of pimped up policemen, uh, or bobbies on the beat. Cause you kind of see it at the, the, um, Raven Society rally as well with the gas masks mm. and, and so on. Yeah. But these guys look slightly different. They look like they have the black metal helmets and the long coats and yeah. jack boots, effectively. It's what they look like when they're coming up. They look much more like German SS soldiers. Yeah, definitely. Than the they certainly guys. look hardcore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, as I say, Pimp my police officer. Mm-hmm. I think that's everything that we have on uh, Bess and Alfred's team up, really, for the beginning of the episode. Do you want to go on to question number two, John? Yeah, question number two. They aren't Republicans, are they? <laughs> um, yes, this is the Queen uh, showing a kind of a, a, a penchant for maybe uh, those lovely horses and truncheons rather than machine guns, uh, riot police, tear gas, and snipers as well mm-hmm. uh so the prime minister is much more hardcore here in how he wants to control a, a large rebellious crowd yeah. the queen a little softer dare i say it um but it's kind of interesting that for her she's seeing them as potential republicans um and I think the great thing behind this is that we do have um, the whole notion that the Raven Society seem, at least Lord Harwood, um, is not entirely sure that the Queen will play ball with yeah. him and the Raven Society uh, when they assume power mm-hmm. um, or if they assume power. But for him, it's more when rather than if yeah. uh, for Lord Harwood. And so they do have a backup plan here, which is... Um, 
Hey fellow governors, it's Derek here interrupting John mid-sentence, no less, to uh, apologize. We got something wrong while we were recording the podcast. I usually catch it while we're recording and we just re-record, uh, or I fix it in editing and just take out a mistake that we've made. Uh, this time I missed it and we mentioned it multiple times. Uh, we're talking about the Duke and Duchess of Windermere. Uh, they're mentioned a couple of times in the episode and we mentioned it a bunch of times and keep calling them Lord and Lady Windermere, which wouldn't make them stand out as much as Duke and Duchess. Uh, they're obviously called that for a very specific reason, which John is about to talk about here. So apologies for getting that wrong. It's very unusual for us, but I did want to hop in and let you know before you started uh, emailing us and telling us how wrong we are. <laughs> Thanks so much. Back to John. Her cousin, um, it, it's Lord and Lady Windermere mm-hmm. uh, coming from America. It's Wallace Simpson and King Edward, uh, the king they abdicated, uh, and that kind of idea, I think, okay. coming from so- America. Uh, and... Yeah, you could look at modern day Harry and Meghan even as well, but certainly um, this idea because uh, the, the supposedly that deal from the Nazis that if they had actually occupied Britain uh, during the Second World War, that they would reinstate him back on the throne. Okay, we need to rewind because I'm, I don't know anything about the British royal family at all. So Wallace Simpson was a, an American actress, was she? Or American she, socialite? Yeah, Wallace Simpson was an American, I think, socialite. I don't know whether she was an actress. I can't remember now. Uh, but she was divorced. And so at the time he fell in love with her, um, Edward, and, uh, but it was a big scandal because right. she was divorced. Um, but, and ultimately it led to his abdication from the throne. Mm. Um, so just to and, give up the throne and somebody else has yes, to take it on. Okay. That which was, Queen was basically Queen Elizabeth's dad. Right. Uh, that then took on the throne. So he abdicated, but there's always been this suggestion that if Hitler had successfully invaded and occupied England, mm. he would replace, um, the king with Edward, right, and bring him back. place him back on the throne. A, a bit like a Quisling type figure. Um, you know, it would be this puppet head of state, right? But still a, a monarchist, and and this is kind of this thing that's that exactly that, what, um, yeah, that Lord Harwood is yeah. doing here. That's exactly what the um, prime minister is suggesting as well, because he brings it up to the queen in yeah. her company and says yes. to her, "If you don't follow the orders that they're giving you, you're going to have to abdicate." That's when she asks the question: Not Republicans are they? As in. They're not going to make me give up the entirety of being a queen and being the monarch of this country. They're they're just looking for me to play ball with them effectively. She seems just as interested in trying on new cocktail dresses as she does in leading the country and giving orders to the prime minister. Doesn't seem massively interested in listening to his opinions, but feels like she can she can do it all while just changing clothes and looking at herself in the mirror. She can send uh, the, the lovely horses out to stop the British people from rioting when he's talking much more about wiping all of the Raven Society off the planet, effectively. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's his version. So so it's interesting that they're making that connection with some real-life characters from from royalty in, in the past as well. The Meghan Markle and, and uh, Prince Harry connection is just that she's also a, divor- a divorcee who recently got married into the royal family in the UK. So that's something that always rankles uh, people that are that are part of uh, the royal the royal watchers the mention of someone that's divorced getting married to uh, to a king even though of course the whole british church was set up on divorce so, so yeah no probably i shouldn't mean, it, cause a problem yeah I, I i think to be honest unfortunately that if i, I mean it's not something i heard on Meghan markle but it's probably just something that the papers yeah uh, used to have a go at her but no one really cares i mean i suppose at this stage there's enough divorces mm-hmm. um and obviously the the social stigma of divorce maybe has broken down a little more than yeah. it, it was back uh in the 1930s if not earlier but yeah i i think it it's a really kind of great little conversation though between the prime minister and the queen as they discuss tactics about how to control a large crowd um, and and the queen seemingly taking a little softer approach if well to be honest i don't think charging horses and truncheons are that soft but certainly mm-hmm. it's not a sniper or yeah. rubber bullets or or i think water cannons are are also suggested yeah. somewhere along the line so 
I kind of uh, like this conversation. I can't imagine it's a, a conversation that the actual queen today would have with her prime minister. Certainly but I, I think certainly here, the queen does dictate a little bit to the prime minister, well, uh, which is kind of interesting because it's not something that would be the case today, for example. Yeah. But I, I like this conversation. I think it's just really, uh, really good. I like these two when they get together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we we kind of mentioned a little bit before. We do feel like that the society that's in power is still headed by the queen very much, and she still has a lot of power over the um, the artifices, the police force, the uh, the politicians, the lords and ladies of of England. Uh, we still feel she has a lot of power over them. Uh, not necessarily the way we have it now, where she's completely separate from. She's head of state, but separate from the workings and the inner workings of uh, of the whole of society, I suppose, now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think on to question number three. Mm. Is Ripper a trusted advisor or a manipulating master? Mm. Um, yeah. It, you know, Ripper and um, Udine Thwaite, they're not in this episode for very long. In no. fact, I think it is literally the one scene is, yeah. in the car. Uh, and you just have this moment where, um, you know, Udine is thinking, well, we need to do a, a rally and we need to kind of fight back on, on this. Yeah. Uh, whereas he, he's really telling her that, you know, we need to step back and allow the police to go in and break this up. Because mm. in the previous conversation between the Queen and the Prime Minister, we have heard that this is automatically an arrestable offence. It's breaking uh, public disorder yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, he's recommending here that let the Ravens take this spotlight mm -hmm. uh, and let the police effectively take them down. Um, and then the No Name League will be in a much stronger position um, because at that moment, it's, well, Frances Gaunt will be arrested. She will be put behind bars. Uh, and maybe the No Name League then have this clear path to power. Yeah, yeah. I, I know he, he's also questioning, you know, why why would the Ravens hold a rally when they're going to get arrested? You know, why? what information could they possibly have to give to the people of the UK that would risk arrest effectively. So it's quite interesting that he yeah. has that question. He's like, well, let's see this play out rather than us also putting our head in the chopping block. Let's see it play out. Let's set, let them put their head up on the parapet and see what happens before we go any further. And then he has that moment. And this is why the question is here. Really he has that moment with her going, but Undine, you're the leader of the No Name Society, uh, not me. So, of course, you do whatever you think is right. You know, it really did feel like that little finger moment from Game of Thrones where he's gone just that little touch too far and trying to push someone into what he wants them to do. And to let them think that they're in control, he tells them they're the leader, effectively. I'm just here to give you advice, my lord, kind of thing. You know, yeah, <laughs> what definitely. it feels like. So I'm, it really did make me question, and lots of our feedback, as you saw, uh, does talk about whether Ripper is the one that is controlling everybody. But you can see in this piece here with Undine, who he is, he is in a relationship with, remember, um, you can see he is controlling her in a way. He's at least putting forward some likely scenarios for her to follow even if he's not specifically controlling her, even if he's not being bowed down to as a master, he's laying out the ideas for her, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Lots more on that, I'd say, as the rest of the season progresses. Yeah, and another short question as well. Mm -hmm. Question four, what's the CIA doing about the Ravens? Yeah. Uh, again, here we have Martha and Thomas. Again, only for one scene. Yeah. Thomas is drowning in scotch and pills when... Uh, Martha knocks at the door. Yeah. Like he, he is still suffering from his uh, exposure, uh, to his own rage, really, mm -hmm. at Alistair Crowley's uh, and everything that happened there. So, you know, he is, um, he's in a bad way at the moment, is, is Thomas Wayne. He, mm -hmm. he really, um, is trying to escape the world and, and seemingly has left his CIA position at the moment, at least temporarily, uh, to wallow in kind of his own fear or, um, maybe he's almost ashamed of himself that he did do what he did on the basis of thinking, uh, you know, seeing the devil inside of him. It's a really interesting scene, isn't it? And it's kind of similar to the scene that we saw Thomas arrive at Martha's house after the death of Esme, she was also wallowing in her own pity, effectively, or pity pit. And now Martha's arrived here and 
he's wallowing in his pity pit after being over in the in Alistair Crowley's house. Um, it's intriguing that he basically wants to brush it all under the carpet and he's saying, look, we were just there scared by a scary man and that's it. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Not going to revisit what happened at Crowley's house. And as you say, all that happened really is that he saw the dark side of himself, which he didn't think existed, um, which is quite interesting. Yeah. He just pushed over that little edge. But they have this whole conversation where he gives out to her. He again admonishes this person that we know in future they get married and have a long life together, you know, <laughs> but, but here we're seeing them never possibly get it together. They seem to absolutely hate each other or wind each other up at least yeah. all the time. You know, he says to her, you couldn't possibly make the grade of the CIA. You passed out for three days and lost the person you were supposed to be taking care of. <laughs> How would you possibly go on a mission for the CIA when you're like that? And he ju- she just kind of looks at him and goes, but you're the benchmark. You're the person that the CIA have put in this massive position in the UK. I think I match up to your standards, basically, which is just really interesting moments between these two. It's great to see the two of them together. She does feel like she is caring a little bit for Thomas Wayne. She cares about him, let's say. But there definitely doesn't seem like there's a big relationship on the horizon. Like if he's not going down and wouldn't need to give her a ring anytime soon. No, not at all. And I, to be honest, I hope they don't accelerate towards that i like them as claire said in her feedback Mm -hmm. um i like them like claire does as individuals at the Mm -hmm. moment i think it gives them a a kind of a better dynamic i like the ups and downs you know this is a troubled courtship if you will um and i i like that and i hope they don't rush too quickly into kind of making this couple yeah uh, to be honest because i i think you know, it's a bit like with uh, Esme's death. I hope that doesn't make a, a season two. I don't see why you would need yeah. to linger on that into a season two if hopefully Pennyworth gets that. And I really hope that uh, they do get a season two. Mm-hmm. But certainly, um, yeah, I, I'm really en- enjoying this antagonistic relationship yeah. between the two. It, it really gives a bit of fire between them. And I, I think that's good. Yeah, definitely. Really enjoying the, the relationship between the two of them. As you say, yeah, I totally agree with you. This idea of creating it just because they need to get married gives nothing to the Martha character then. We never knew anything about Martha before coming into these movies. All we knew was that that was Batman's mother who was shot in Crime Alley trying to take care of Bruce and had pearls around her neck. That was That's about it. That's about all we ever knew about yeah. Martha, Martha Wayne. Now we've got Martha Kane. Uh, there's some little bits of backstory about who she is in the comic books, but nothing major. Um, so it'll be intriguing to find out much more about her. And, and if you just push her into getting married and having a kid, well, then you've completely lost the characters, characterization that doing a backstory like Pennyworth gives you. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. But I'm loving the fact that they're so much butting heads here yeah. that you you expect that they can work together for three or four years and slowly develop a relationship. You know, Definitely. It can absolutely be one of those great will-they-won't-they will, kind of relationships. Even though we know they will, you can just put it to the back of your mind and still have that will-they-won't-they they kind of yeah. discussion in your head. You know, I think you've, you've already mentioned this season, you wonder whether it's just a cover story and that they're never <laughs> actually married, you know, because that's how far away it seems right now, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. On to our last question for the episode, because there is major build-up. Really, there's only two points in this episode. It's what's happening with Bess and Pennyworth and the Ravens rally at the end of the episode. Those are the two major moments in the episode, really, because it's been building the whole way up. I love how we have this planning uh, conversation between Dr. Gaunt and um, Harwood back at the back early on in the episode, where she's effectively about to give up her leadership. And as we mentioned early on in the season, she doesn't seem to really care about that. She wants Harwood back as the leader of the organization, but he's so extreme. You know, you hear him talking to her going, when I get back into power, I'm going to castrate the PM and put him on a gibbet uh, in front of the public. And she's kind of going, is that not a bit too far? <laughs> is that a bit extreme for the British public? Maybe you need to um allow him to live out his life. The British people want forgiveness, you know, even though last week at the end of the episode, it's, it had her standing in front of people giving a major speech about joining the Raven Society. She's kind of hiding how extreme Harwood is behind all of that. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. You really get the sense that she's not fully on board with everything that Lord Harwood is saying. Yeah. Even down to bringing in Lord Windermere to replace the Queen. You know, she's kind of like, well, 
we love the Queen. Um, we're, we're monarchists. Yeah. We're not Republicans. Um, she will get behind us. You know, we're doing this for order and to protect her. Um, whereas Lord Harwood is kind of, no, they need to get into line. The Queen needs to get into line, uh, behind us and take direction and instruction and if she doesn't then we bring in the windermeres Mm -hmm. and i i think it's it's interesting you see her nervous glances it's just a nice little performance um here that you know her eyes are kind of you, you suddenly get twitchy as um he starts bringing up this idea of replacing the queen uh with windermere yeah uh as well as um, you know, some of the more extreme stuff that he, he he's suggesting. So I really like that. Absolutely. And she does make him back down about the fact of replacing the queen, as you say, saying that she's a monarchist, you know. And he says to her, before they go on stage and before he gets to that rally, he says to her, yes, actually, I agree with you. The queen will definitely be play, play ball. We'll make sure that she understands and make sure that we don't have to replace her. To get Gaunt on side, to hand over the reins, effectively, of the society to to Lord Harwood. Uh, I want to say, I did call that metal nose that he got. I was you quite did. proud of myself that, I, that he got that metal nose. It's um, a great addition, actually. Yeah, it's a really it's a real gangster thing. You used to see it in gangster yeah. movies that that would be the replacement nose for Billy the Nose, effectively. So, so we got Harwood the nose here with his uh, with his metal appendage uh, as he goes on stage in front of the audience, and we see a very energized Mister Pennyworth here, Alfred's father, in the audience uh, of this big rally that's going on. He doesn't seem to be hiding much that he's a member of the Ravens League and the Raven Society, right? Absolutely not. No, um, it was, and I'm glad that they showed that. Um, that he's the at the rally. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really good because you know we see him at the rally with um Dr. Gaunt and yeah. now again at this um rally outside in the park. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that was quite interesting was that we do see him at that lord's house doing his butlering duties yeah. where the prime minister and lord curzon are as well. So and mm-hmm. um, that's kind of interesting because I to me I was wondering is this the way in? Um, you know, is he the butler that will open the door to allow, um, Harwood to get to the prime minister likely, or for yeah. the Ravens to take over and take down the, the monarchy? Mm-hmm. I think the other thing here was, you know, to begin with, I wasn't expecting Lord Harwood to reveal himself here. Yeah. Um, it's funny as it kept flitting between Francis Gaunt giving a speech before she resigns and you see the prime minister in his office. Uh, watching it on TV, the you know he's puffing on his cigar, but there's a door behind him, and I just thought you were going to see that open, right. and Lord Harwood would be there, right. ready to take him down. That this was some kind of misdirection mm-hmm. on the part of the Raven Society. So, um, but nonetheless, I thought the reveal that she resigns, stands down. I, I loved the reveal of Lord Harwood. I loved how the Prime Minister kind of blows his top really at this he's like he can't believe it and i like then that it is automatically send in the horses send in the the riot police mm-hmm. and actually why not send in the armed riot police as yeah, well? yeah so i i kind of really like that but lord harwood does seem to have um he is a horse whisperer yes i'm wondering is this a superpower we are in the DC universe, remember, this is a, a part of the DC comics, and it really felt like he was showing a superpower right there where he tells them to respect their rights and all of the horses stop attacking the people, you know? Yeah, it's that idea of manipulation and influence and that it, you know, that maybe that's why he's this charismatic leader mm-hmm. that everyone is afraid of because don't I say it's almost like a mind control yeah. type of thing, mm-hmm. um, but it also extends to animals. Absolutely, yeah. Just wondering who it could possibly be. Is there is there a very very old character in the DC universe that uh, that could control horses or animals or people just with the power of their voice? Is this Beastmaster? <laughs> yeah, there isn't absolutely. a character called Beastmaster in the DC universe. I did check it. I promise. <laughs> But it, yeah, we, we have this moment where he also effectively wins over quite a lot of people. It's being shown on the television. So we have a lot of people tuning in to watch this big rally, you know, and it does seem to work. I suppose we were asking the whole time, what is it that they're going to say here? That's going to be such a huge change to the society. But effectively, 
the Raven Society are coming out of hiding and saying, everybody, you need to follow us now. And what they're going to do is take out the Prime Minister. And as we find right at the end, we're, they're going to make the Queen abdicate and give over her throne to uh, to the Lord and Lady uh, Windermere, who have just arrived back in the country. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, even though Harwood relented after those questions from Dr. Dr. Gaunt, he welcomes them back into the room going, welcome back to your lands. You know, he doesn't seem to have much doubt that he's going to be replacing the Queen at some point in the future, which will be a massive change to, to England. Yeah. Um, I wanted to underline it because he very specifically says we have won the minds of the English people of England, uh, not the UK, not Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. You know, this this country is one country at the moment. It is the United Kingdom. I'm wondering in this universe if it's just England. I don't know because I just haven't seen a map. I haven't seen right, whether well, it's a much bigger country or, or not. Yeah. Um, we know Dave Boy lives in London and he's from Scotland, but... Do we know that Scotland is part of the United Kingdom? Do we know it's whether there's a separate country there or not? There's so many questions when you start to manipulate time the way they have in a show like Pennyworth. There's so many questions as to whether everything else is the same or not. You know, the wider world is definitely different. We know that how the Nazis are still in some form of power in Europe. So you wonder what's going on uh, in other parts of the country that haven't even been talked about yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it is an interesting thing, and mm. I, I'm really looking forward to uh, next week's absolutely. episode as yeah. well. It feels like Bruno Heller has painted this vast canvas that he could take in any direction there because we've never really explored the DC Universe in the UK at this time. So it'd be interesting to know. That is our five questions for the episode. Any notes on the episode that you want to talk about? Any any lines that we might have missed or anything like that, John? No, I have no uh, notes for the episode. Only thing is just looking through my notes here. It's the Duke and Duchess of Windermere uh, are the people that are that have abdicated ah. and are coming back. So, uh, so they do have a slightly different um, position. And Lord Smythe is the one protecting his son from being tracked by a pleb. Is the uh, is the way that he describes it. So, uh, so it is Smythe, not Curzon, but that's not necessarily any, but Curzon, any reason. He is a bastard. Yeah, but there's not necessarily any reason why he would be uh, would have the name of Smythe as well. You're right. Uh, he may, may have taken on any other name so um, or have his mother's name, of course. So it is interesting that he's still protecting him, even though he doesn't have the same name and it may not be traceable back to him. So uh, that probably gives a little window for Alfred to be able to get out of this after after murdering um, murdering the son of a lord because he may not be able to trace it back. So uh, just intriguing to see what, what happens in the next episode. Yeah, good stuff. John, overall, how do you rate this one? I give this four and a half dirty wet nurses out of five. <laughs> uh, really like this episode a lot. I, I thought the, um, I thought the direction, the cast, um, production, everything, I just really was well done. Mm. It, it built everything up to this rally. I think we had this nice interaction of the establishment with the queen and with the prime minister. And of course, we, we see Alfred at his absolute lowest, but also, um, at his absolute murderous, uh, state, really. Yeah. And I, I think having Bet Sykes, I, I like this unlikely, uh, reluctant team up. I mean, it, probably isn't really a team up she is inserting herself into his act his activities mm -hmm. um but i like it i i just think it works so well it sh it you know it shouldn't happen but it is happening yeah. because bet sykes force of character uh compels her to be in the place to help Alfred for the sake of esme yeah uh, i do like the point though that she made where she goes Oh, so really, it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of interesting Absolutely. because that might be the route where she turns on him again. Maybe. Um, who knows? Yeah. And I, I don't know how long this will last, but I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. So, And they I, didn't make a big deal out of it, but I do love that scene when Alfred is kind of is ahead of her running down the street, but she's still keeping up quite well behind him. And it's only when the bus comes on along and he jumps in the back of it and goes, you get out of my life. I never want to see you again. Basically that he gets away from her. It's just, yeah. I like that no matter what he did really from that tea room at the beginning, she was always about to follow him down to the estate agent to find all the information out that he was finding out. So I like that. Definitely. So for me, yeah, four and a half dirty wet nurses <laughs> out of five. Yeah. I, I think this is this one is an excellent episode. I I think it will depend on whether we get a season two as to whether they 
are going to give us more detail behind the killer of Esme. We've only actually got two episodes left of the season. So tying up that, that end and maybe doing another time jump of another six months potentially and finding out what happens to the Raven Society now might be a way to go for these last two episodes uh, and not coming back to the Esme storyline at all would be good. But if they have a season two, it feels like they have got those strings they can pull again if they want to talk about uh, who it is and, and the wider implications and everybody else involved. But overall, a brilliantly shot episode. I think it was really well written as well. There were some great moments uh, throughout this one. So really enjoyable. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, remember, fellow governors, to subscribe to the podcast over on any good or evil podcast catcher mm-hmm. of your choice. Just search for the Pennyworth podcast or TV Podcast Industries. Uh, there is Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. If it's a podcast catcher, we're probably on it, and you can listen to our dulcet tones on all things to do with Pennyworth. Absolutely, and we've just finished our coverage of season one of The Boys, uh, a season on Amazon Prime, another comic book TV show. Uh, very violent, very fun, really, really great show, so check that out on TV Podcast Industries if you haven't checked out that podcast yet. Uh, we will definitely be doing more shows after Pennyworth finishes. Next one we've got on the slate is Watchmen, a show that's going on HBO on the 20th of October and starts in Europe on Sky Atlantic on the 21st of October. So we'll be covering the show as it comes out uh, next month in October. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, fellow governors. We'll be back next Monday with our review of Pennyworth, episode nine, entitled Alma Kogan. Mm, interesting one. We're doing some research on Alma Kogan during this week. I don't recognize the name off the top of my head. Me neither. Wow, that's the first time. Excellent. Looking forward to that one. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to you next time. As always, fellow governors, it is a pleasure speaking with you. I'm about to saddle up and head on in my riot gear to take down a few old plebs and rebellious secessionists. But after I've tidied up, wiped the blood from my baton, uh, I'll be back to speak with you again soon. Bye. Bye. Are you going to be riding a lovely horse? A lovely horse. <laughs> One of those lovely horses. Do you know, that's actually the Father Ted entry for uh, for Eurovision was my lovely horse as well. <laughs> it's all, all full circle. It's all connected, John. Who oh, one loves a lovely horse. <laughs> Bye. Bye.